The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report 2009 Video Archive. Buy your copy today at CorbettReport.com. You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 23rd day of January 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the Corbett Report podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos created by myself in the past, and links to websites that the Corbett Report supports and that support the Corbett Report. Well, this has been an extremely busy week for me behind the scenes, as I'm sure you no doubt noticed the new website redesign is up and online, and I think it looks pretty good, if I do say so myself. So it was an awful lot of work, especially at the end, more than I thought it was going to be to get it transferred over. So thank you for bearing with me during that uh, period of transfer. But now it seems to be up, and I have had some feedback of some people having difficulties accessing certain things, and other people say it works fine for them and is even actually faster than before, which it should be because this is now a new dedicated managed server that uh, the Corbett Report is running on. So... So, uh, again, the feedback is appreciated, and I absolutely do not have time to respond to all of it that comes in, but I do appreciate all of it. So, once again, please continue to keep that feedback coming in and and let me know about any um, problems that I can fix on my end, and I will do my utmost to make sure it gets fixed. And I will be uh, trying to catch up on correspondence, but again, I just don't have time to reply to everyone. So, bear with me, and uh, please... Please um, have some understanding on that front. And on the front of the new server and the uh, the what really made this new website redesign really possible was uh, a generous donation by EuroVPS.com, who has donated a dedicated managed server for the Corbett Report. So I am now. Uh, hosting the Corbett Report on their servers, and I would highly suggest that people check out EuroVPS.com if you are interested in your own hosting needs, not because I am being paid in any way to say this, I'm not, it's just that um, not only have they generously supported the Corbett Report with a, a donation of a server, which is greatly appreciated, but also they have been genuinely helpful in helping to set up that server because I'm by no means a server administrator and there is an awful lot to set up and to go through when you start a new server. So um, without them, I couldn't have done it and they were extremely prompt and polite and friendly and helpful in every step of the way. So once again, I I do wholeheartedly and strongly recommend them to anyone who's out there looking for hosting at eurovps.com. So thank you to them for uh, the stepping up to the plate and making an incredible contribution. And I think everyone will benefit from that in the long run. And of course, it's always difficult to get used to a new website design and to get used to how it works and flows. But uh, it's up, and it's uh, I think it it's pretty good. And uh, I'm going to be putting together a video just to introduce it to people and show some of the uh, the functions. Uh, there's a couple of notes that I'd like to go over about it. First of all, anyone who was subscribed to the Corporate Report podcast email list, well, you are no longer subscribed to that email list because that website uh, server is is no longer up and, and so that list is no longer operable. You will now have to sign up for the new email subscription list and the easiest way to access that is just click subscribe on the new homepage and on the right side there will be a little bar that says subscribe by email and you can enter your email address and click submit. Then you just have to uh, enter a 
a, a captcha, and then you can get uh, the emails delivered. And in this this time, it's set up in such a way using FeedBurner that it will deliver a new email every time that there is a, a new interview or episode or article or whatever may may be. It will deliver an email at around 12 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, on that day. So if there's nothing new, you won't get an email. If there is, you will. It's an extremely uh, helpful system. So I hope people will uh, s- subscribe to that if they prefer a email subscription. Or of course, there are the usual uh, RSS feeds. So if you're already subscribed to the Port- Corbett Report podcast feed, for example, you will continue to get the podcast in, in your uh, podcatcher of choice. But also now there is a new all-inclusive RSS feed. And again, that's at the bottom right of every page, the banner of CorbettReport.com. Just click on that RSS feed button and you can get the entire Corbett Report. All the articles, interviews, videos, all of the updates to the website will go into that feed. You can subscribe through through iTunes, for example, and you can get all of the, uh, the media that we push out delivered directly to one feed. So I, I think that's probably the easiest way to get all of the information and get it right delivered right to your uh, podcatcher right on time. So I would suggest people subscribe to that feed. But again, there are numerous different ways to do it. And there will be a, a video coming out later this week uh, to, to show you through that. But I have a lot of videos coming out this week. So so we'll fit it in the schedule somehow. So once again, please stay tuned to youtube.com slash Corbett Report and watch it carefully because there will be a lot of updates this week. So it's best to subscribe to the uh, YouTube channel if you haven't already. And I know the video uh, button on CorbettReport.com leaves a little bit to be desired at the moment. It's just a, a single player. It's not the the uh, fully inclusive, all-you-can-handle, all all-you-can-watch uh, all uh, video player that was on the old CorbettReport.com homepage. Um, and that's because I'm behind the scenes putting in the each post for each video but there's been a few hundred videos now and it takes a long time to transfer that information over into the new format once it does it will be accessible in a similar way to the episodes and interviews anyway this is a lengthy explanation but suffice it to say i am working on the videos and it will look better in the future for right now it's probably the best way to do to find the videos is just youtube.com slash corbett report and that's a lot to go through and a lot of information so right now why don't we just get straight into sunday update This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 23rd day of January 2011. And now for the real news. 17-year-old Chilean political activist Matias Rojas has become an overnight internet sensation with the release of footage of his confrontation with David Rockefeller in Santiago, Chile earlier this week. Rockefellers, come back. We don't want your new world order, you know? Leave Chile right now. Leave Chile. You are not... You're, you're killing a lot of people! You're killing a lot of people! Live here! Live Chile right now! Live Chile! Live Chile! We don't want your world government! Live Chile right now! Live Chile, okay? Live Chile! Your family! Your family is the most disgusting in the world, you know? Live here! Live! Live! You also, you're a traitor to Chile! Mr. Agustin Edward, you're a traitor to Chile, okay? You're a traitor to Chile! What you're doing right now? Okay? 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 You know everything. You know everything. You're participating with him. You're participating with him in this. Your world government will fail, okay? Your world government will fail! Will fail! Will fail! You know it! Leave Chile right now! We don't want you here! We don't want you to do this disgusting thing here! Leave Chile now! 
Mr. Rojas appeared on the Corbett Report yesterday to discuss his recent confrontation with David Rockefeller. Uh, we arrived uh, to the airport at 1 p.m. and according to this information, uh, David Rockefeller was coming in a commercial plane. I didn't believe it uh, at the beginning because I thought that maybe my source, who has another source, uh, he was wrong and some they have uh, fit into some disinformation. But in indeed, it happened, and we were running around like at 1 p.m. in the airport and trying to catch him. Uh, catch Rockefeller and we lost a lot of hope. We asked people uh, where uh, does um, a famous person comes out of the airport from some special door, some special entrance, something like that. But uh, no one knew. Um, then we turned around to leave the place and we were losing all hope, you know, and he was there. <laughs> uh, suddenly he appeared in front of us uh, leaving the you know the big building and entering to this car where Agustin Edwards was, uh, it was a little time frame since he left the building of the airport like 60 seconds and he entered to the car. So it was like a miracle for me. Uh, he was in front of us, so I took my camera and I confronted him. The video of Rockefeller being confronted in Chile has now gone viral, having been seen online hundreds of thousands of times and having forced mainstream media in Chile, including CNN, to not only admit that the incident occurred, but attempt to address the reasons why the Rockefellers might be so reviled. That David Rockefeller himself, the 95-year-old patriarch of the family and sole surviving member of the third generation of John D. Rockefeller's band of robber barons, should be the target of South American vitriol is no surprise, given his documented role in the promotion of the now-defunct free trade area of the Americas, a proposed attempt to further the neoliberal agenda of sovereignty, destruction, and economic subjugation under the guise of globalization. Vice President, um, I just enjoyed so much your whole speech, but I was particularly pleased that you gave such a strong endorsement for the free trade agreement for all the Americas, subject that has been of great concern to me for many years, and particularly recently, and I think it's absolutely essential for the strength of our economy. Rockefeller's role in the drive for an FTAA was a lot more central than he portrays. Rockefeller cultivated Latin American leaders who could be counted on to support such a proposal. Both the 1994 Miami Summit and the FTAA proposal were conceived and nurtured by a Rockefeller-created network. Prominent among the organizations sponsoring the Miami event were the Council of the Americas, founder and honorary chairman David Rockefeller, the Americas Society, chairman David Rockefeller, the Forum of the Americas, founder David Rockefeller, the Institute for International Economics, financial backer and board member, David Rockefeller. The Trilateral Commission, founder and honorary chairman, David Rockefeller. Although the Rockefeller family was the object of America's scorn in the 19th and early 20th centuries, when John Dee's ruthless pursuit of money and power was still fresh in the mind of a public wary of the world's first billionaire and his unimaginable political clout, the family has managed to mitigate that image of unbridled avarice in the quest for political dominance by first inventing the PR industry and then using it to convince the world that the family is interested only in philanthropy and charity. In contrast to the carefully cultivated image of the family that gave their wealth away in the interest of humanity is the reality that the Rockefeller family has been instrumental in furthering the aims of the international oligarchical power structure that has been manipulating world events for generations. 
The Rockefellers have been the driving force behind the promulgation of eugenics and depopulation programs throughout the world in the 20th century. In the early, early 1900s, John D. Rockefeller gave $11 million to establish the Cold Spring Harbor Eugenics Records Office, the first major eugenic research center in the United States. The experiments conducted there inspired the eugenics policies, which led to the involuntary sterilization of tens of thousands of Americans, almost invariably poor and or minorities. During that same period, the Rockefellers also funded the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes in Germany, which were the center for the Nazi eugenics programs giving rise to the Holocaust. In 1952, John D. III founded the Population Council, an organization dedicated to promoting the now-debunked fear that overpopulation would ravage the Earth and cause mass death by the year 2000. Rockefeller appointed Frederick Osborne, the leader of the American Eugenics Society, as its first president. In the 60s, the Rockefellers funded a WHO-administered task force on vaccines for fertility regulation that developed anti-fertility vaccines, a task force that eventually succeeded in developing an anti-HCG vaccine that caused spontaneous abortions in vaccinated women. In the 90s, WHO-administered tetanus vaccine programs in multiple countries were racked with scandal when it was discovered that vaccines were laced with HCG and causing spontaneous abortions in the third world populations who were being unknowingly injected with them. David Rockefeller continues to promulgate the same overpopulation fear-mongering, always framing the problem so as to posit the United Nations as the only solution, without noting that the UN was built on land donated by his family on the ashes of the League of Nations, an organization founded by Rockefellers and their family allies. Last year, David Rockefeller hosted a meeting of billionaires including Ted Turner, George Soros, Bill Gates, and others, at which they concluded that overpopulation was the world's most pressing problem. In 1973, David Rockefeller penned an ob obituary for communist dictator Mao Zedong, the man personally responsible for more deaths than any other human in history, in which he praised the high moral and community of purpose engendered by Mao's leadership and claimed his bloody dictatorship and slaughter of 60 million of his own citizens to be one of the most important and successful dictatorships in history. Although the footage of Rojas's confrontation has struck an instant chord with those around the world familiar with the Rockefeller family ties to international finance, globalist organizations, the eugenics movement, and other genocidal programs, this is no, by no means the first time David Rockefeller has been confronted by a new generation of informed citizen journalists empowered by 21st century technology. Sir, a citizen's grand jury is seeking your indictment. Sir, a citizen's grand jury is seeking your indictment for the crimes of 9-11, sir. We know about your new old order. We know about it. We won't be silenced about it, sir. We know about it. I'm sorry. National sovereignty will prevail. Mr. Rockefeller, you will never get your new world order. We're not your slaves. We are not your slaves. Last year, the Corbett Report talked to Neil Foster and Dave Derby, the man behind the Sovereign Independent who had the chance to confront David Rockefeller at the 2010 Dublin meeting of the Trilateral Commission. It was, all, it was just chance because, you know, it was on the Sunday morning and the talks were all over by then, you know, but there were still the trilateralists all there. You know, a lot of them would have been there on Sunday. So, and we, the, you know, we decided to make our way back down and get some breakfast and that. We stayed in Dublin overnight and... We went to get some breakfast, and the place where we went the day before was closed. So at that point, like Neil said, at that point, we said, well, why don't we go to the Four Seasons where the trilateral was being held, just for, just for the crack, you know? 
So we went down and um, it, it all, everything just fell into place. And where we sat, you know, there was no special reason where we uh, reason why we sat where we did. Uh, we just sat there, and it just happened to be the place where Rockefeller walked straight past us. So what are the chances of that happening? You know, everything fell in place for us. It's almost divine. <laughs> Now please go to CorporateReport.com to download episode 170 of the Corporate Report podcast, The Coming Anastrophe, where we ask what Frank Capra's 1946 Hollywood classic, It's a Wonderful Life, has to teach us about the revolutionary nature of community. Welcome, my friends, to episode 170 of the Corporate Report podcast, The Coming Anastrophe. There can be little doubt by those who have been keeping their eye on the economic Armageddon taking shape around us that we are heading into times that could only be described as catastrophic. The future will be a total disaster with the collapse of our capitalistic system as we know it today, wars, massive government debt defaults, and the impoverishment of large segments of Western society. That's according to our guest today, Mark Faber. He's the editor of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report. So there's the, the gloom and the doom, yes. Mark. Oh, <laughs> yes. What are you so concerned about? They've been taking in the bad assets of the banks and financiers and loaning out more money again. They built the bigger bubble. The bubble is bursting. Greece is just a symptom of what's more to come. I mean, it's pretty simple, Jamie. The North Sea oil is drying up, according to your government. You've been a net exporter. Now you're about to be a net importer again. That's a huge shift. And the city, the financial system, which has also been a huge contributor to the UK's balance of trade, is also now finished. I mean, you know, you're, you're not going to make much money there again. Your banks, according to your government, are all in serious trouble. So the, the major sources of income for the UK are now disappearing, and that's going to lead to serious problems with your currency. It always has. But the, what's happening right now, though, is because China is trying to maintain this peg, which they shouldn't do, they should, they, should, they should go and peg their currency to gold the way we used to do. Right. Because you can't anchor your currency to the dollar when the dollar has no anchor. And in fact, it's just a drift. It's right. sinking. But if the Chinese allowed their currency to rise, China would benefit. In fact, President Obama had it right. He hit the nail on the head in that press conference. He said that if China allowed its currency to rise, right. that would bring prices down for the Chinese. That would give them more purchasing power. And that would lead to a higher standard of living. But what he didn't say is. was that the opposite is true here. Because if the Chinese currency rises, the dollar falls. Prices rise for Americans. We lose purchasing power to the Chinese. And our standard of living falls. The, That's what's going to happen. With the real undoctored U.S. unemployment rates reaching levels not seen since the Great Depression, with the Eurozone beginning to collapse, with China starting to fight its inflation problem by starting to decouple from the dollar and beginning to trade with Russia in its own currency, we see the beginnings of a complete upset of the economic system that we have known all our lives. And in times of great economic uncertainty, we are of course faced with social instability. It seems like we are facing a perfect storm of catastrophe, not wholly unlike the catastrophe that befell the poor put upon citizenry of Bedford Falls one day. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Hey, lady, you got any money in the bank? You better hurry. George, let's not stop. Let's go. Come on up there. 
Uh-oh. Please, let's not stop, George. I'll be back in a minute, Mary. Bedford Falls, of course, is the fictional town depicted in Frank Capra's seminal 1946 Hollywood classic, It's a Wonderful Life. In this film, James Stewart portrays George Bailey, the proprietor of a local building and loan who faces disaster one Christmas Eve when his uncle Billy misplaces an $8,000 deposit. In this situation, as in the bank run situation, the only way out for George Bailey was by appealing to the community spirit of those who had invested in the savings and loan. Now, just remember that this thing isn't as black as it appeared. I have some news for you, folks. I was just talking to old man Potter, and he's guaranteed cash payments to the bank. The bank's going to reopen next week. But, George, I got my money here. Did he guarantee this place? Well, no, Charlie. I didn't even ask him. We don't need Potter over here. And I'll take mine now. No, but you're, you're... You're thinking of this place all wrong, as if I had the money back in a safe. The, the money's not here. Well, your money's in Joe's house. That's right next to yours. And in the Kennedy house, and Mrs. Maitland's house, and a hundred others. Uh, you're lending them the money to build, and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can. Now, what are you going to do, foreclose on them? I got $242 in here, and $242 isn't going to break anybody. Okay, Tom. All right. Here you are. You sign this. You get your money in 60 days. For 60 days? Well, now, that's what you agreed to when you bought your shares. Tom, 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 did you get your money? No. Well, I did. Old man Potter will pay 50 cents on the dollar for every share you've got. 50 cents on the dollar? Yes, cash. Well, what do you say? No, Tom, you have to stick to your original agreement. Now, give us 60 days on this. Okay, thing. Randall. Are you going to Potter's? Better to get half than nothing. Tom! Tom! Randall! Now, Randall, wait. Now, wait. Now, listen. Now, listen to me. I, I beg of you not to do this thing. If Potter gets a hold of this building and alone, there'll never be another decent house built in this town. He's already got charge of the bank, he's got the bus line, he's got the department stores, and now he's after us. Why? Well, it's very simple. Because we're cutting in on his business, that's why. And because he wants to keep you living in his slums and paying the kind of rent he decides. Joe, you had one of those Potter houses, didn't you? Well, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what he charged you for that broken-down shack? Here, Ed, you know, you remember last year when things weren't going so well and you couldn't make your payments? Well, you didn't lose your house, did you? You think Potter would have let you keep it? Can't you understand what's happening here? Don't you see what's happening? Potter isn't selling, Potter's buying. And why? Because we're panicky and he's not. That's why. He's picking up some bargain. Now, we, we can get through this thing, all right. We, we've got to stick together, though. We've got to have faith in each other. But my husband hasn't worked in over a year, and I need money. How am I going to live until the bank opens? i got doctor bills to pay. I need cash. I can't keep my kids on faith. I've got to have... How much do you need? Hey! I got $2,000. Here's $2,000. This will tide us over to the bank reopens. All right, Tom, how much do you need? $242. Oh, Tom, just enough to tide you over until the bank reopens. I'll take $242. There you are. That'll close my account. Your account's still here. That's a loan. Okay. All right, Ed. Well, I got $300 here, George. All right, now, Ed, what will it take until the bank opens? What, what do you need? Well, I, I suppose... Twenty dollars? Twenty dollars. Now you're talking. Right. Thanks, Ed. That's fine. All right. Now, Miss Thompson, how much do you want? But it's your own money, now, George. don't mind about that. How much do you want well, now? I can get along with twenty, all right. Twenty dollars. Fine. And I'll sign there the you papers. Are. You don't have to sign anything. I know you. You pay when you can. That's okay. 
All right, Miss Davis. Could I have seventeen fifty? In some respects, It's a Wonderful Life is a conventional tale of how one man's life can make a difference. But dealing explicitly with the theme of how finance capital can shape a community and either make it or break it, the movie has increasing relevance as more and more money is being funneled into the hands of a very few international financiers. Therefore, Mr. Chairman, I make a motion to dissolve this institution and turn its assets and liabilities over to the receiver. Buddy, you dirty conservative! Oh, I'll read this next time. George and Julia Wagner. It's too soon after Peter Bailey's death to talk about chloroforming the building and loan. Peter Bailey died three months ago. I second Mr. Potter's motion. Very well. In that case, I'll ask the two executive officers to withdraw. But before you go, I'm sure the whole board wishes to express its deep sorrow at the passing of Peter Bailey. Thank you. It was his faith and devotion that are responsible for this organization. I'll go further than that. I'll say that to the public, Peter Bailey was the building in law. Oh, that's fine, Potter, coming from you, considering that you probably drove him to his grave. Peter Bailey was not a businessman. That's what killed him. Oh, I don't mean any disrespect to him, God rest his soul. He was a man of high ideals, so-called. But ideals without common sense can ruin this town. <laughs> now, you take this loan here to Ernie Bishop. You know, that fellow that sits around all day on his brains in his taxi, you know. I happen to know the bank turned down this loan. But he comes here, and we're building him a house worth $5,000. Why? Well, I handled that, Mr. Potter. You have all the papers there, his salary, insurance. I can personally vouch for his character. Friend of yours? Yes, sir. Uh, you see, if you shoot pool with some employee here, you can come and borrow money. <laughs> what does that get us? A discontented, lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. And all because a few starry-eyed dreamers like Peter Bailey stir them up and fill their head with a lot of impossible ideas. Now, I say... Just a minute. Just, just a minute. Now, hold on, Mr. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny-ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't make them better customers? You you said that they... What did you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait? Wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that... The, the, you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I... 
You're the you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Come on. In 2009, the Huffington Post took its own cue from the movie, starting its own campaign to encourage Americans to withdraw their money from the too-big-to-fail banks and put it into community banks. This is obviously a quite literal interpretation of the movie, and it certainly can't hurt to do such a thing and to withdraw our money and withdraw the momentum that we give to the international financiers by placing our money into their banks and taking that money and putting it into community banks where there is at least local accountability, and the opportunity for the stimulation of our local economies, even as the greater economy around us begins to collapse. But is there a more general point to be extracted from this movie? Is it just about banking and the economy, or is there something more fundamental that we're missing out on if we try to reduce it to those terms? If there is a core message to the movie, it must be the inscription that George's guardian angel Clarence leaves in his copy of Tom Sawyer, Dear George, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. Thanks for the wings, love, Clarence. The point at the end is not that George gets the money. The money is just pieces of paper that are literally brought in in big buckets and dumped on the table in front of him, equally as worthless as the arrest warrant that the officer rips up in front of him. They are just pieces of paper and only tokens of something else, tokens of wealth, tokens of value, and they come and they go and they have no meaning. What really matters, the ultimate thing that makes someone rich and wealthy, is not the number of pieces of paper or the amount of gold coins in his cupboard or closet or stuffed under his mattress. The real wealth in this world comes from community, from friends, from people who will be there when the times are tough, as well as when the times are good. Does this present some way out for us in these times of economic catastrophe? Well, what's the opposite of catastrophe? I posit to you that there is an opposite to catastrophe, and it is revealed in that message from that Hollywood classic from all those years ago. As corny and trite as it might sound, there is a message to be found here, and it is that there is an opposite to catastrophe, and it is anastrophe. Now, for those English scholars in the audience who are going to nitpick my neologism by pointing out that anastrophe is, in fact, already a rhetorical term for the type of speech in which we jumble up the order of the words, yes, I am aware of that, and no, making new words is not nearly as easy as Shakespeare, or more accurately, the writers commonly referred to as Shakespeare made it seem. But nonetheless, Anastrophe seems to be the best way to put it. If catastrophe is the breaking down of a system and the cataclysm that leads to a failure, then anastrophe is the building up of a system and the great sudden raising up of a society. Is such a thing possible? Well, in our modern world, it's difficult to see how it would be. We have been trained to be a part to not treat people as our friends or potential friends, as people not to be used or exploited for what they can give us or what they can offer, but to be respected and supported, as we would support and respect our own family. Now, it is absolutely and certainly not my intention here to begin a moralizing lecture and to tell people how to live their lives. 
I am no paragon of virtue myself, and I don't expect that anyone out there is, or should be held to that standard. But there is nonetheless a palpable sense that the ways that we are kept apart from each other, and kept fighting with each other, and kept at each other's throats, through all sorts of misinformation, misdirection, and phony binary opposites that we're given to choose between, the left and the right, the religious and the atheist, the nationalities, the races, the sexes, all of these ways to keep us apart, divided, and fighting with each other, are an integral part of that system without which the catastrophe we see taking shape around us could not happen. When we come together as a community, the result is equally as amazing as the economic collapse that we are facing. And the opposite is the result. I don't want to be naive or simplistic about this and simply say that conflict is the root of all problems in the world and therefore it must stop, because I think that idea has already been couched in New World Order terms and posited to us by people like H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russells and others who have thought of the perfect system of utter control in which there will be perfect worldwide peace because everyone is controlled absolutely in their daily actions by a scientific technocracy never before imaginable in our society. And that is not the type of world peace or harmony I'm thinking about. In fact, I'm not even thinking about world peace. I'm thinking about peace and the ability to live together at the local community level. And when we realize that the vast majority of humanity is on the same page, is in the same boat, is tied together, and we're all going to sink or we're all going to float, then it's in our best interest to come together and float. There is even the very real possibility that dwelling on this cataclysmic and catastrophic information week after week, month after month, year after year, can be the detriment, can in fact steer us towards the very catastrophe that we're seeking to avoid in the exact same way that a driver on the road who is staring at a pothole will inevitably steer into that pothole, although that's the last place he wants to go. The international oligarchs wield much power with their control over the economic system, but we ultimately relinquish any power that we have by dwelling on what they are doing, fighting back against what they are doing, thinking only of what they are doing, instead of concentrating on what we are doing and what we can do to, to detach ourselves from that system. If we do not detach ourselves, then they will steer society in the way they wish. But we are society, and when we take that responsibility into our own hands, we can effectively get rid of the problem by simply not letting it have control over us. This is a very important point and one that needs to be articulated carefully in order for the listener to get the full understanding of what's at stake here. And that's why I'm going to leave it to someone who I think is more articulate than myself on this matter, Freeman Fly of FreemanTV.com, who in a recent episode of his own radio show articulated this very point, which he does on a frequent basis as he talks about the end of the world script that we are all playing into when we only focus on the cataclysm and the catastrophe rather than on the friendship agenda through which we can achieve the freedom that we are seeking. So we don't just need to cater to the news stories. We don't need to fill our heads with all the devastation and destruction that's going on. It's good to know. It's good to to have an idea of what's going on. But then if you get lost in it, that's when we lose.
Because you stop making friends. You stop associating with your mankind and you start to believe all the horrible stories about how bad human behavior really is. The next, uh, next events people are seeking and looking towards for the, their end of the world script. And I watch it as, as a researcher and as one that databases all this information. I see that everybody's just waiting for the next thing. They're not going back thinking, well, knowledge is, is valuable at any time. Actually, there was a comment when I put the program to chaos just recently up on YouTube, and someone's like, from 2006, WTF, you know? And I'm thinking to them, you know, they're, they're thinking about news, or I don't know what you're thinking when you say such a thing, because the database of knowledge is, is essential to understanding the full picture. And I see that everybody's just seeking, not everybody, I'm sorry, guys, I know you guys are cooler than that, uh, <laughs> But a uh, vast majority outside of the Freeman listeners are actually just uh, waiting for the next event, and it's become just a game as we uh, watch the end of the world unfold. This is going to kill us, you see. And if we get all caught up in all of the aggression and the idea that they're trying to kill us, then once again we kill ourselves, you see. Because there's really only one method out, and I swear to you, as as a as a researcher, as someone who's looked at this for, you know, I, I, okay, only 20 years, you know, you probably need a thousand to get to the the bottom of this thing. But you see, throughout it all, that all the effort of protest, all the effort of uh, screaming to the, the highest heavens on your soapbox, mean nothing, nothing at all never changes a thing. I've seen it over and over again. I've been in front of riot squads. I've seen CS gas. I've been there. I've done it. I know what's going down, and I see the uselessness of it all. The uselessness of being angry and upset about the things that they are doing. Because it gets you and I nowhere. So to this end, I want to start the friendship agenda. I, I want. You know what would be great is if there was a... Uh, a religion of people, if you could call it such a thing, that when they went door to door, they came over to bring you things or to do handiwork for you or to you know, offer you something or just to say, hey, come on over for dinner. That's the type of door to door I'd like to see. And the fact that we're all frightened of one another, that we can't come together, that we walk like silent zombies past each other at the grocery store is to our detriment. So the friendship agenda is honestly the only thing that's going to work for you. And if you realize the, the pyramid scheme of this, how well it will spread, I mean, this would go exponential in no time at all. So that's what I, you and I, as we sit back and we listen and we gather all this news, and yeah, I swear to you, I will be getting to the Gabriel Gifford story, and sorry that I talked this segment away and didn't take the phone calls, but... We will get to all of this because you're listening to the Free Zone live, and I like to just keep it rolling. Friends to me are, are the, the quintessential beauty of life. They are the angels that have come to my way. Every single one of you that I have met out there has been the most fantastic person I can imagine. And the fact that we all have enough to share with one another, we all have enough space where time doesn't matter, we all have everything everyone needs if we could just start growing some food. We could outgrow this Illuminati plot. We could overgrow our government. We could find our way out. 
But if all we want to do is sit back and bitch about what's happening to us and feeling the victim mentality, then nothing's ever going to change, and they're going to keep coming with their madness, and people are going to go insane. I mean, it probably won't be that long before some massive catastrophe happens here in America, be it the blowing up of uh, Yellowstone or be it a massive earthquake there in Arkansas. And we've seen the U.N. vehicles lining up on the east and west coast. We've seen satellite photos of Air Force bases, runways, filled with U.N. vehicles. We've discussed the FEMA camps and the coffins and the, the setup, the trains. We've looked at the picture that's coming. And we can't seem to figure out the way to stop it. Now, what has been taught to us all along is to fight, fight, fight. This has always been the method of the Illuminati, to get two warring factions to kill one. Time for us to take Now, in one sense, that clip seems to be speaking out against podcasts like The Corbett Report and the work that we're doing here, because obviously we do advocate political resistance and resistance broadly defined in terms of fighting back against the tyrants. But it's important to understand the effective ways of fighting back and that fighting back through violence and through fighting itself is usually, if not always, counterproductive. And again, I think that clip amply demonstrates that, yes, indeed, when we go into these situations where there are, we are arrayed against the riot police, we've already lost. Once we get to the point where the police are dressed in black ski masks like Darth Vader and lined up with their, their body armor and ready to throw tear gas into the crowd, there's no possibility of a, po- a positive outcome from that. You can storm a building, you can even maybe even take the building back. But uh, ultimately, what does it represent? What did it gain the people of France when when they had their revolution and Robespierre came in and started t- taking everyone's head off? Ultimately, it got people even into potentially even a worse situation than they were in before. And again, I don't think violence is going to be the way out of our problems. And I don't think simply getting into the mentality of fighting, fighting, fighting is necessarily going to help us at all when a much simpler and a much easier and a much more effective way of defeating the system is to take ourselves out of that system, to stop being part of it, to stop fighting against it, and thus empowering it, which is a concept that I know a lot of people have troubles with, and even I myself. Obviously, I'm not blameless here, and I fall into the trap of empowering those things that I'm trying to fight against. But I think it's extremely important that we take a moment to cogitate on the ability of you and I and everyone out there to begin to truly take ourselves off this system. And although we are having successes on many fronts, for example, the water fluoridation front, where the EPA has recently come out to lower the maximum allowable um, measure measurement of fluoride allowed in the water because... They've finally admitted that, oh, it might be bad for you. Of course, they're talking about dental fluorosis rather than bone cancer or uh, thyroid problems or uh, IQ reduction or all of the other documented health effects of fluoride. But still, it is a step in the right direction. And that is because there is a massive amount of political pressure coming on every level of the system right now because of grassroots organizations getting out there and taking action on the water fluoridation front and thus helping all sorts of people, even people who may not even know 
know anything about water fluoridation or why it's a bad thing, indirectly helping all those people as well as the maximum rate uh, allowable levels get reduced, and thus the ill health effects produced from the water fluoridation get reduced too. That's an example of taking concrete political action and having concrete results. But at a more fundamental level, The only reason that water fluoridation is an issue is because we as a community, as a society, as a civilization even, when you consider that this is the way that the vast majority of the industrialized world works, have taken the absolute most essential ingredient for life on this planet, water, and made it into something, into a type of, not a commodity, but something that has been socialized or put into this system where the government will take care of it and it will pump it into your house and it's oh so convenient and oh by the way they can do whatever they want and they can put whatever they want in that water supply and of course we not only have water fluoridation we now have talk of putting all sorts of other medications in the water supply using the stunning success of water fluoridation as the example and the basis from which to work with so again once we give away some of these fundamental things and put it in the hands of an unaccountable authority that claims to be a democratic government but we all know is not well then what have we really done other than to empower the system and then we can fight all we want to try to gain these types of victories of getting the fluoride back out of the water but ultimately it requires the constant guarding of uh, the uh, the jewels of liberty and that's exactly what we have to do anyway so why not take that power away from the government government and form our own local systems for growing food, for getting water out of the ground, or for even purifying our own water? Why do we always and by default allow the government to come in and set up these systems through which they can control us and they can decide and we can fight and petition them all we want and sometimes we can even win but ultimately it's still their decision to make but only because we have ceded the system to them. Again, this is a very important point about the nature of political resistance and the struggle that we're engaged in. And it relates very, very well to an extremely interesting article that I came across recently. I found it on prisonplanet.com, but it comes from a site called theburningplatform.com. And the author of this article is Jim Quinn, but he's writing about a book called The Fourth Turning, which was published back in 1997 by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And it's about the nature, the cyclical nature of these types of catastrophic situations that we find ourselves in, and perhaps the possibility that there might be an anastrophe, a cataclysmic uprising and upraising of society to overcome these problems by coming together as a community, or at least that's the way that I'm reading this. But let's get a little bit into this article, and again, you can find this at theburningplatform.com, and of course, I'll put the link in the documentation section for today's episode. And this article starts with a quote from The Fourth Turning by Strauss and Howe. Quote, The next fourth turning is due to begin shortly after the new millennium, midway through the OO decade. Around the year 2005, a sudden spark will catalyze a crisis mood. Remnants of the old social order will disintegrate. Political and economic trust will implode. Real hardship will beset the land with severe distress that could involve questions of class, race, nation, and empire. The very survival of the nation will feel at stake. Sometime before the year 2025, America will pass through a great gate in history, commensurate with the American Revolution, Civil War, and twin emergencies of the Great Depression and World War II. End quote. 
Now, that's an extremely provocative and interesting quote, especially because it was written back in 1997 and seems to be predicting the course that we are on as a society quite well. And the obvious question is, how did they prognosticate this so accurately? How did they know that this crisis mood would start around 2005 and would begin to pick up pace until it becomes a point where it seems to threaten the very fabric of the society that we've known? Did they have a crystal ball? Well, of course not. So let's get into the article to find out a little bit about their theory. Quote, We have crossed the threshold into a decisive era of secular upheaval when the values regime will propel the replacement of the old civic order with a new one. The silent generation, 1925 to 1942, is dying off. Baby boomers, 1943 to 1960, are entering elderhood. Generation X is entering midlife, millennials are entering young adulthood, and a new generation of child artists are being born. Strauss and Howe have documented that a long human life of 80 to 100 years makes up a social cycle of growth, maturation, entropy, and death, and rebirth, known as a seculum. Within each cycle, four generations proceed through their four stages of life. Every 15 to 25 years, a new turning surprises those who only think of history in a linear way. Strauss and Howe are historians who have been able to document this generational, generational cycle going back to the 1400s. The Anglo-American seculum dates back to the waning of the Middle Ages in the middle of the 15th century. In this lineage, there have been seven secula. Late Medieval, from 1435 to 1487. Reformation, from 1487 to 1594. New World, from 1594 to 1704. Revolutionary, from 1704 to 1794. Civil War, from 1794 to 1865, Great Power, from 1866 to 1946, and Millennial, from 1946 to 2026? The turnings of history are like the seasons of nature. Seasons cannot be rearranged, seasons cannot be avoided, but humans and nations can prepare for the challenges presented by each season. Winter has descended upon our nation. End quote. Again, a very interesting article, and we don't have time to go through all of it, although it does go into some degree of detail about this concept of the fourth turning and the hundred-year seculums that have dominated uh, Western history, at least for at least since the fall of the Middle Ages. And that is an extremely interesting and highly predictive way of looking at this thing and, and, and believing that there might be something to this in terms of just mere generational cycles actually having something to do with the, the era that we find ourselves in. And that seems to me to be a much more intellectually satisfying uh, understanding of what's happening than something to do with some time wave zero 2012 type uh, gobbledygook. But at any rate, I think it's extremely interesting. And it again, it does seem fairly predictive because again, the fourth turning was written back in 97. And they were talking about a lot of the things that we are facing now. But on the other hand, that runs the risk of being something perhaps too formulaic and too set in stone. If this really is a generational cycle, then perhaps nothing can be done about it, and we are simply waiting for the death and rebirth, and everybody is right in simply waiting for the next big event, as Freeman lamented earlier, and as I've lamented before on this podcast, as sometimes it really does seem that people are just waiting for the next big event and waiting for the open declaration of martial law and jackbooted thugs in the street 
street wearing the actual Nazi uniforms before they'll actually believe that the crisis has finally arrived, instead of understanding that we're in a system of incremental implementation of a system of control that is subtle and complex and so pervasive that it would be like asking a fish to describe the water in which he is moving. Unfortunately, our minds are often ill-equipped to handle such subtlety and complexity, and we often go for the easiest answer. And that's kind of what's frustrating about this entire affair, is that I really do think that coming together as a community and finding community-based solutions for getting off of the grid is probably the easiest answer possible in all of this. And sometimes people are looking for the big answer in capital letters, which often involves some giant revolution and overturning of the system in some bloody warfare battle. And we as a species are in a lot of ways, perhaps biologically fit for just such a scenario. We like to, to have the big struggle and the big fight and to overcome the, the evil force and to throw it away and, and to start over and to have the, uh, the Jedi dancing around the fire with the Ewoks at the end of the movie. And we're trained to expect that type of ending to this, this type of struggle. But instead, perhaps it's best to just think of us really just starting to forget what is enslaving us and to start focusing on what we want to do to build up a community that will survive after the New World Order, or whatever you want to call it, is gone. Because unless there is an alternative that has already been built up, how will we ever defeat what we are trying to defeat? There is no way to do it unless we can unhook ourselves from the system. Again, I'm not trying to offer any easy answers here or to simplify the very complex world that we're living in, but I do think that there is another way of reacting to this type of catastrophe other than simply waiting for it to happen and then reacting, or even trying to fight against it. Perhaps the best way is to start our own anastrophe, the building up of a society that we want to see, rather than waiting for that society that we don't want to see to come. I'll leave you to ponder the rest on your own, as I'm sure you're capable of, and invite you, of course, to check into the newly redesigned CorbettReport.com and to keep your eye on YouTube.com slash CorbettReport this week. And I invite you to enjoy me next week for episode 172 of the Corbett Report podcast, Meet Rahm Emanuel. And today, I'll leave you with Alan Watts' 2010 Christmas Composition. <laughs>